Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. Well, I decided to take a week off for election week, and I'm glad I did. Uh, We had all kinds of news coming out, and as I was working with my students, both prior to election day and after election day, I kept thinking, we're continually working with primary sources, items that are around this election and from this time period, and we're interacting with them and using them to construct meaning. And those primary sources, those sources from the moment, are going to continue to be used for a long time, I'm sure. One other thing that I had a chance to do on election day itself, besides getting to vote and actually getting a chance to vote with my 18-year-old daughter, it was her first time voting, and that was a lot of fun for both of us to get to experience that together. One other thing I had a chance to do was to talk with some elementary librarians from the Palm Beach School District in Florida. And when I was talking with the coordinator of that event prior to it happening, one thing that she shared was what the current reality was there. And if I understood it correctly, essentially the librarians and I believe the classroom teachers as well are working with two groups of students at the same time, some of them face-to-face and some of them who are learning from home. And it just added one more layer into what we're seeing and my understanding of what we're seeing across the country from classroom teachers and librarians and how they're working with students, either in a fully face-to-face model. That doesn't look anything like the face-to-face models that we had in our heads before the middle of March last year completely online, hybrid where we have different groups in different places, and then this model where we have different groups of students at different places but at the same time. And as I was thinking about their current reality and my current reality with teaching students and connecting with students, specifically around primary sources, be them ones from this election or more historically based items, there was some thinking that was really coming into play for me that I think is important when we think about this learning environment that we're all in right now, whichever model you're in, that I'm starting to layer on top of some existing thinking. And so I thought I'd take the episode today and share a little bit about that. So one existing piece of thinking that I'm always pulling to the forefront when I'm working with primary sources in student learning and I'm constructing some experiences for students. And I'll I'll talk about these more in depth in in a later episode, is what's the source that I'm using? How are students going to analyze that source? And how is that analysis going to connect to their other learning? That those things are always at the forefront of planning a learning experience with primary sources. But as we start to see all of these different uh, learning models come into play, there's three other things that have become 
really important to my thinking as well. And these were always things that I was thinking about. These were always things that came into play, but they've taken on a little bit more importance, I guess you could say, especially as we think of students working at home and us being in different places and not having that same model, even if it is face-to-face that we had last March and earlier. And those three things are access, how are students going to access the primary source, interaction, how are they going to interact with the source, and collaborate, how are they going to collaborate with their peers. Now, as I talk about some of this today, I know that there are some educators out there who are working in a situation that maybe I didn't really give justice to, and that is the situation where we have students that are learning from home but may not have either access to a device or reliable internet access. And I think ideas around accessing primary sources and interacting with primary sources still come into play. I think the collaboration piece gets really problematic in those types of situations. And from what I've seen with educators that are trying to work through this and make the best of it, that collaboration piece is one of the more difficult pieces that they're wrestling with. I'm not going to be able to speak to that today to a great degree because I just have not had a chance and to be honest with you, haven't had the need to wrap my head around that. I would love to hear from people who have and how they think that some of the things that I'm sharing today play into those type of environments. So what I'm going to be talking about today is mainly students who are working in an online environment students that have some type of device and reliable internet access. And speaking then to this idea of utilizing primary sources. And I'm thinking specifically about those Palm Beach librarians and the ones that maybe have never used primary sources before and are thinking, "Mm, is this really the time to do it? Do I have so many hurdles in front of me that maybe bringing in a new type of learning isn't something that I want to tackle right now. And the more I think about it, the more I think that really bringing in primary sources has a lot of opportunity in this online learning environment. And I will say that I was just telling my wife the other day that I feel like I've done some of my best teaching of the year because we're in an online environment with some of our students and a face-to-face environment with other groups of students. I feel like I've done some of my best teaching online this year. I think then that bringing in primary sources, bringing in a new type of learning, if this is new to you, might be a great idea, especially if you're getting comfortable with the tools that are in front of you and you're feeling a little more at ease, a little less hectic than you were either at the beginning of the year or in the spring. And I know that those things ebb and flow, at least they have for me. So let's talk about these three things in regard to using primary sources. And I want to start off with access. When we're working in any environment, now that many of our students have a designated device, which for us wasn't the case prior to our learning from home, getting to primary sources, accessing primary sources is so much easier because many of the primary sources that my students use are sources that are freely available online and where I can simply share out a link 
through our learning management system. So we have some teachers who are using Google Classroom. We have other teachers who are using Seesaw. I know that there are other ways that you can share these out. But the, the access piece seems to be, in all reality, the lowest barrier of these three pieces that we're going to talk about today. One thing that I would suggest is that when you're sharing the item out, be it a, an, whatever format it is, an image, uh, a, a manuscript, whatever it is, I am one who often only shares the item out. And by that I mean often when I get to a website, it has the item, the primary source item, along with all of this bibliographic data. And for some of my students, that ends up being too much information. And so what I do is I isolate the item itself. So sometimes, for example, with many Library of Congress items, you can actually select a resolution, click a button, and go to just that item. With other websites, I may be control clicking on the image and selecting to view this image in a new tab and then taking that URL and sharing that out with my students. But whatever way you can do this, isolating that item and stripping away all that bibliographic data can be, I think, a little less distracting. The other reason I do it is because often that bibliographic data gives, in some ways, too much information at the moment. So I often want my students not only to make observations of this item, but to react to it, and sometimes most importantly, to ask questions from it. But if they have all this additional bibliographic data, it can really hinder asking questions. And so I like to isolate the source itself. And if there is important information, for example, sometimes the year that it was created, sometimes who created it, whatever bibliographic data is important for students to begin that interaction, you can provide that on your own. And then later on in the experience, if it is beneficial, you can link out to the entire source with the bibliographic data. So that's a little bit about access, and I think that that's a, that's a low barrier. But I also want to talk about interaction. And, and I look at this a little bit differently than analysis. So analysis is what is the specific analysis method I'm going to use or my students are going to use to make meaning from an item. But interaction, I look at it as a little differently because when I have my students analyze, and they're still going to be doing that, whether it's in a face-to-face -face situation or an online learning situation, but when they're doing that, they are also interacting with the item. So they might be holding it in their hands and getting a close look at it. They might be circling things and underlining things and annotating on the edges in our previous types of interactions, those interactions where it might be just right in front of them on their desk. But what about when my students are learning at home or what about when my students are going to be accessing this completely online? What is that interaction going to look like? And it depends, but I think there's a few good options out there. First of all, if you are using the Library of Congress's primary source analysis tool, if you have not been on their website recently, they've reformatted that, in, that online analysis tool where you can much more cleanly and easily type directly into the analysis tool. And after students write directly onto this primary source analysis tool, which is essentially an online PDF, they have the option to print it, but probably what you're going to ask them to do is to share a screen, 
to download it and share it out to you or to a group. But there's ways then, once they document directly onto that primary source analysis tool, for them to be able to get it to either you or to other people in a collaboration setting. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So the primary source analysis tool online is one way that students can be interacting and documenting their thinking around that analysis. Sometimes, though, you might have a teacher-led analysis, and that's often what I end up doing, especially at the beginning of the year. But with my younger students, I typically do teacher-led analysis all the way through the year. And what that would look like in a face-to-face -face model as far as interaction is concerned is that students would be calling out observations and reactions and questions, and I would be either on my interactive whiteboard or with my iPad that's connected to my television, and I would be documenting all of their reactions, typically in different colors. So I've got their observations in one color, their reactions in another color, their questions in another color, right onto the text or right onto the image that they are looking at. You can do that same thing in a variety of ways in an online model. So what I've typically done this year is I've had that image pulled up on my iPad. We use Zoom, and so I share that screen through Zoom, and I simply go into an edit mode with the photograph, use my Apple Pencil, and I mark up the image or the text or whatever it is. And while the student isn't necessarily, in that case, interacting with the image directly, they are seeing that capturing of their thinking. And that's really what we want to see when we do all of that. Now, of course, you could have other ways that they interact. So I want you to think about what are the tools that you're already using and how can that lead to students interacting? How can it lead to students looking carefully, but also documenting their thinking around that particular primary source? So if you're using Flipgrid, if you're using Seesaw, how can they leave verbal videos or documentation of text to be able to archive that thinking and then move into that idea of collaboration. How can they then share it out with others? So I think that collaboration is one of the most important parts of analyzing primary sources. I think that when we look at how people, historians and other people, look at primary sources, interact with primary sources, they do not do it in isolation. They bring others in, they get their opinions, they talk through what they are thinking. And when we do that with our students, and I, let me correct myself, when our students do that with each other, they really get a chance to do that type of historical thinking that makes the primary source analysis such a powerful tool but you have to bring others into the collaboration. And what I've found is that when we're doing this face-to-face, -face, that the thinking really gets elevated. So if we're in a virtual environment, how do we do that? Well, again, we're working in Zoom. We can use breakout rooms. I know that there are other video systems that use breakout rooms as well. We can do whole class and have done whole class video chats where people or students are using the protocols that their teachers have already set up to share, be it in a chat or verbally, and they can do that collaboration back and forth. They can share their thinking with others back and forth, and they can listen and read each other's thinking. 
if students are documenting things in a um, Flipgrid or in Seesaw, are there ways to let students see what each other is saying? Can we use Google Docs, for example, and I know many people use that, in a shared document format where we can get multiple students all documenting in one place? And that, in some ways, might be an even better version of that online primary source analysis tool from the Library of Congress because in that case, I can only have one student documenting at a time. Now then they could go out and share it with another student and build on a conversation from there. But what if I recreate that and share that out with small groups of students and ask them to collaboratively put down their thinking? That's another way that that collaboration model can really build. But again, look at what is already happening. Look at the tools that are already approved by your school or your district. Look at the tools, this is even more important, that students are already comfortable with using. Because if they are already comfortable with using them, then we can bring in a different way to use them potentially, or different tools around using them with the use of primary sources, that they're going to come in with a comfort level that they already have. I want to also put this on as a little bit of a disclaimer, because when we think about tools that we already use, sometimes we go into using them in ways that they're already that we're used to using them. So for example, if we're using Google Slides, maybe we often use that as a way for us to push out information for students as opposed to putting multiple students or groups of students on multiple slides and letting them again collaboratively work on an item and use it as a way to document their thinking. So all of the things that I'm sharing today, whether you're using Flipgrid, Seesaw, Jamboard would be another great one that you could bring in. If people use Edmodo and can use the discussion threads in there, there's all kinds of ways that we can get not only this interaction, but this collaboration around primary sources. But these are situations where students are driving the learning as you, as the educator, are guiding. So I'm not talking about presentation tools or recordings that are teacher-driven, but taking maybe and looking at those types of tools and saying, how can students use these to document their thinking and to drive their own thinking? I don't have, obviously, a one-size-fits-all answer. There are so many models, not only in how we're seeing students right now, but in the tools that we are encouraged to use. And our district is one where we are asked to use a limited number of tools, especially at the elementary level, because we have students who need to be proficient in using those tools so that they can use their energy around the learning and the thinking. And that's going to be a little bit different for so many people that I've spoken with and so many people that I follow on social media. They're looking and sharing how their students are using. It's so obvious that there is no one-size-fits-all answer. But I think these questions around access and interaction and collaboration. If those things are things that you're bringing to the forefront when you're thinking about bringing primary sources into students' learning, both online and in all of our learning models that we're using right now, I think that that can serve you well. There's one other shout out that I really wanna push forward and that is the TPS Teachers Network, TPS standing for Teaching with Primary Sources. And I hope in a later episode to bring in someone from that network 
so that we can have a richer talk about what is there in its entirety. But I will say that the last several months, there has been a specific group created in this TPS Teachers Network around online learning. And there's all kinds of wonderful resources and thinking and conversations that have happened there. And so in the show notes, I'm going to share a link specifically to that group. I will say that you do have to sign up to be part of the TPS Teachers Network. There's no cost or fee or anything like that, but you do have to create a username, log in, and then you can join this particular group and follow along in all the new discussions, but also dig into the archives that have collected there over the last few months. I think that you will be glad that you did. If you are working with primary sources in a unique learning environment, I would love to hear about it. You can find me on Twitter at Captain Library. That is my Twitter handle. And I would love to hear from you. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank you for subscribing to this podcast. I want to thank you for sharing this out with colleagues that you think will find it useful. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Mm -hmm.